0: So I think some important context about me before I start talking is like, I'm like Easter AM rooting for everyone Black. So you should know (laughs) that I start there. (laughs) I want that to sink in. Just really absorb that, feel that right here. And the reason that I say that is because I think it's really important to understand the strata and the way that systemic racism works and the fact that there's a hierarchy and the fact that Black women often fall at the bottom of that hierarchy. So it's not to the erasure of any other aspect of identity, but it's focusing. I'm in engineering, so we focus on priority zero, what is the most broken First, And what is the highest priority first? And so that's why I say that. Intersectionality is a really fraught concept, but it's a concept that deals with the different aspects of our identity and the way that they play off each other and with each other. And I gave that context first, not just for a punchline, but because it's important for the rest of what I'm going to say. I'm Afro Puerto Rican. So what that means is I'm from Puerto Rico. My family's from Puerto Rico. My family is black from Puerto Rico. If that's confusing, there's this really great search engine, (laughs) Google.com. Nice (laughs) part. Right. So I'm Puerto Rican. I was born and raised in the United States, but I'm Afro Puerto Rican. And so what that meant is growing up, I was constantly compared to other Puerto Ricans that were white and told I wasn't pretty because I looked black.
1: That was an excerpt from an important and timely panel conversation that explores the unique and painful career challenges that women of color face in the workplace. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. This session, Women of Color and the Workplace, offers invaluable insights for women of color and equally as important for white women to understand systemic racism and learn what it means to truly show up for people of color. Moderator Minda Hartz, the author of the memo, will offer a roadmap for women of color and allies and lead an engaging conversation filled with actionable advice to address workplace biases, microaggressions, and isolation. Let's get started so you can meet our panelists.
2: My name is Minda Hart. So glad that you're here. You can be anywhere in this building and you're here with us. And so we don't take that lightly. What's interesting, I want you to imagine a five-year-old girl. She is excited to go to kindergarten. Many of us were excited back then, if we remember what our first days were like. She learned how to spell a nine-letter word. That was her name. She was really excited about that. So she went to her first day of kindergarten and her teacher didn't pronounce her first name. So that whole week, she went through her first week of kindergarten with her teacher just pointing at her. And so then she didn't really make friends that first week because the kids didn't learn what her name was. And that little girl went home in tears on the Friday. And her mother says, what's wrong? And she said, I worked so hard to spell Yasminda. My teacher won't call me that. She said, what are you going to do about it, Yasminda? I said, I'm going by Minda. That's it. I think that'll be easier for everybody. And at five years old, I didn't understand what those implications were that would lead me to an adult, Yasminda. But I realized at a small, young age, the concessions that some of us make to make others feel more comfortable with ourselves. And later in high school, I tried it. I'm like, you know what? Let's We're a little bit older, a little more mature. Let's try Yasminda, right? And again, my teachers were afraid of the why. When I got to college, I thought the same thing. We're a little more intellectual, right? And when they would come down to my name, I just say, it's Yasminda, but you can call me Minda. And you can see this just panic release immediately off their faces. And when I went into my first corporate job, I didn't even bother putting my first name on the resume. I decided Minda was it. And it was then that I realized that I had made all these small concessions for people who weren't even willing to call me by my first name. I spent 15 years in corporate America and never was called Yasmin when I saw my check. I made other concessions when I think about it. And I realized what would it have been like if my colleagues would have stood up for me or would have tried to pronounce my name, right? And I learned at such a small age, a young age to shrink. And it was one of those things where I woke up one day and I said, no more keeping our heads down and working hard. It's time for us to lift our heads up and let people know what we want. And that is that we have careers. We have dreams. Audrey Lord says, beware of feeling like you're not good enough to deserve it. If you want the seat, you want the bag, you want the title, you deserve it. And it's up to you to find that table or create that table that is going to see you. Tell the person next to you, I see you. Because part of that is being seen in the career narrative. And I hope you all Purchase the book, The Memo, because it's the first book of its kind written about the stories of us, for us, by us, by a major publisher. Thank you. And I've been on tour since the book came out and it's just been amazing to meet so many people that their story was my story. And we've shared the same tears. And it's time for us to let people know Here's the memo for you, right? No more educating. If you need to educate, read this book, right? (laughs) And so today we're going to have a really hearty conversation. I am excited to jump in. I will say that I'm a little disappointed that we don't have more of our allies in the room. But for the ones that are here, thank you so much. I see you too. So thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to allow these lovely individuals to tell us a little bit about themselves. Demo, would you
0: start for us? Hi, everyone. My name is Demas Rosa Rodriguez, and I work at Google. I'm currently the head of Equity Engineering. It's a team that I started when I noticed that there was a significant gap in the engineering community, understanding what are the ways to measure and detect systemic discrimination in HR systems, specifically at Google, understanding that we have a really big responsibility that we're working towards, but not making as much progress as we'd like. And so I thought it was really important for our engineering teams to build that muscle and have that core capacity. I'm also a mom. My son's in the audience. Raise your hand, Isaiah. He just turned 12. (laughs) Happy birthday. (laughs) That's the most important fact about me. And we'll be talking more shortly.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Raina Sadler. I'm the VP of People and Managing Director at the Sheryl Sandberg Dave Goldberg Family Foundation, which is a mouthful. So I won't say it again, but we're best known for (laughs) our two initiatives, which are Lean In and Option B. I've been with the foundation for about five years now. Before that, I had a background in product management, tech startups, but I'm also a girl who grew up with a funny name in a predominantly white environment. Kind of, I remember being in kindergarten, being that girl and trying to say my name before the teacher had to try to say it out loud. And getting kind of scolded for interrupting her and like learning at a young age to try to make myself smaller or blend in a little bit more, make things easier for other people. And kind of as I've grown into myself, my background is I'm mixed. My dad is Black and my mom is Filipino. So I'm first generation on her side and have just been really interested in building really healthy teams, cultures, and driving conversations about how to build environments where not just white women, but all women can thrive. So excited to talk to you a little bit more about that today.
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Ruchika Tulsian. I'm an author of a book called The Diversity Advantage. I believe that too often women were being told to lean in and... It's a bit awkward. (laughs) (laughs) It's cool. We're going to get through it. It can't be
2: any awkward in mine. (laughs) But
4: honest honest (laughs) conversation. So too often the problem being asked to be fixed were women and people of color. And so I wrote a book about how organizations could lean in. I run an inclusion strategy firm. Names matter so much to me. I am also a contributor to Harvard Business Review. My last article was about names and about why it's so important to pronounce names correctly. Because the same person with a name like Ruchika, the same people who at five, at three, at 10, whatever age they're in, they still walk within us in our workplaces and they still get marginalized and they still get unseen every time you mispronounce their names or you say something like, oh, I'll never remember that. Do you have a short form? So among many, many amazing nuggets of wisdom, I really hope one thing you can do, you can start right now is think about someone whose name you haven't made the effort to pronounce correctly and maybe make a note for yourself and make sure you carry that on and make it a practice. So,
2: thank you. That's awesome. Thank you all. Let's start with Raina. The Lean In Foundation, LeanIn.org, they put out the Women in the Workplace study, and I'd love for you to tell us what that is for maybe those who aren't aware, and then also what are some of the trends that you saw in relation to women of color at work?
3: Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to speak to this. I think a lot of people know Lean In the book, which came out seven years ago, and are less familiar with the foundation, which has been kind of evolving and growing and doing a lot of really great work in the space that people just aren't aware of. So I appreciate the opportunity to come and share a lot of our research with you. So we run the Women in the Workplace Report. It is the largest study of the state of women in corporate America. We do this every year for the last five years in partnership with McKinsey and Company. And this past year, over 300 companies participated and 13 million employees. So it's a really large data set. It's actually the largest data set on the experiences of women of color in America, which is really amazing. But at the same time, we're a small organization and it shouldn't be the largest data set on the state of women of color. So we're really digging into the trends and the experiences that people are having. And over these last few years we've been really focused on looking more at the experiences of women with intersectional identities. So that's been looking at women of color, looking at not just women of color, but specifically looking at what are the differences between the experiences women of color are having, looking at women with disabilities, LGBTQ women, and trying to unearth a lot of those trends. So looking at some of those trends, there's good news and bad news. Unfortunately, there's a lot less good news than there is bad news, but on the good news side... Women of color, and we all kind of... It's a largely women of color room. We all know this. We are doing the work. We're doing everything that we should be doing. We're, we're negotiating. We're asking for more. We're reaching for top jobs. The data shows that women of color are actually more ambitious than other groups. So if I was a company and I'm looking for a talent pool to invest in, that's really where I would be investing. That's sort of the end of the good news. And there's a lot of bad news. So buckle up, but it shouldn't be a surprise <laughs> to anybody in this room. We're doing the work and it's not paying off. We're reaching for those top jobs and we're just not getting them. So we're advancing through the corporate pipeline at a much lower rate. And the reason for that is we're just facing a lot more barriers than other women. So when you look at the experiences that men are having at work versus women are having at work, women are facing so many more barriers than men which everyone's nodding at because it makes a lot of sense. And when you look specifically at the experiences of women of color, they're significantly harder and worse than the experiences of white women. So we're looking at a lot of those different trends. And one of the biggest findings that we wanted to highlight this year is something that we called the broken rung. Has anybody heard of this yet? Good. I'm glad to see a few hands. So everybody knows about the glass ceiling. Companies have really focused on getting more women at the top. And because of this, we have seen some progress albeit progress looks like three out of 13 C-suite positions, which is nowhere near parity, but it's still better than it was five years ago. But where we really want people to be focusing their attention is on that first step up to manager because that's actually where the real inequity in the corporate pipeline starts. So to give you just a few numbers here, for every 100 men who are hired or promoted into that first step up to manager, only 72 women are hired and promoted to those roles. And when you look at the data specifically for Black and Latina women, these numbers are in the 50s and 60s. And We're all very used to hearing numbers that sound like this, but this one should be the most enraging because actually when you think about that stage of someone's career, it's the most even the playing field is at any point in someone's career. We enter the workplace with similar levels of experience, similar schooling. So what qualifies a man versus a woman to be a manager, it's not a lot. So one of two things can be going on there. Either men are that much smarter, that much more talented, and like that much more worthy of being a manager, which sounds ridiculous and is not the case, or there's bias and there's hurdles and there's barriers that are keeping women from getting those jobs. So these are the kinds of things that we're looking at in Women in the Workplace Report. And we're just trying to surface a lot of these narratives, give companies the data so that they can see the problem, understand the problem, and ultimately solve that problem.
2: Yeah, that's really good. Uh, it's important that we have that data because oftentimes it's our feelings, right? And so now we have fact and feelings because uh, sometimes we need to let them know like show a receipt. It's not just this thing. This I actually have something to back it up. Richika, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper. Let's talk about the differences between women of color
4: and white women. Mm-hmm. So firstly, I just want to say that even the categorization of women of color is extremely inaccurate and extremely problematic. So I say this because I present as Indian. I was born in Singapore. I'm actually Singaporean, so I'm an immigrant to this country. My experience is very different from the experience of many immigrants who look like me in this country. And so a lot of times when I see narratives, I see very complicated narratives and very different narratives of what it actually means to be a woman of color. And we see this within the data as well, right? Like one of the highest income groups in this country is of Indian people, for example, right? And within the data set of Asian, we see very mixed sort of data about who's Asian and who's not and what progress looks like. So I just want to say that the data is incorrect in many cases, or at least incomplete. So there's a lot more data that needs to be done. Saying that, I think there is one thing that's consistent. Women of color experience some sort of bias and some sort of racism, no matter where they're from in American workplaces today. And that is absolutely a fact. And I have over the years met many women of color who are like, oh, not me. That's not me. That didn't happen to me. And it's fine. I I get it. We have to put on those barriers. We have to put on our armor. We have to pretend to be different things to be able to fit into a workplace that wasn't designed for us. But it is an absolute fact that every woman of color I've ever met over all these years has experienced bias and racism in some way, shape, or form, whether they're cognizant of it, whether they want to deny it or not. Certainly, white women experience gender bias, and I've done research into this. White women do experience gender bias. That's also undeniable. But when women of color were underrepresented to historically marginalized identities in the workplace, the sum of those experiences is far more profound and far more negative than their experience just because of race and just because of gender. So one huge problem I found in workplaces today is a lot of the gender corporate gender initiatives, they completely leave out or actually make women of color invisible. So a lot of initiatives on negotiating better, for example do not look at the experience of women of color when we try and negotiate and what are those different stereotypes? And they are different for black women versus Latino women versus Asian, again, problematic category, but it is different, right? And so a lot of these corporate diversity initiatives do not take into account what it means when you are a woman of color and you go to your manager and you try and negotiate using the tools and tactics that were set in place for white women, right? What does it mean when more than half the number of Latina and Black scientists who were interviewed for a study in 2015 said that they were often very frequently mistaken for janitors or admin assistants, scientists, right? What does it mean when your workplace says, let's all go casual dress today, right? Let's be casual dress all the time, right? What does it mean if you are not allowed to wear your hair the way that is right and feels good to you, right? What does it mean when your corporate policy doesn't allow that? So without us really diving into the experiences of women of color, I would say no corporate gender equity initiative. And I'm glad that companies are are waking up to this. No corporate gender equity initiative is really gonna move the needle until you specifically and constantly look at the experiences of women of color, especially black women in your company.
2: Yes. Demma, let's talk about intersectionality because I think even when we talk about we're celebrating this year, women's suffrage, right? Right to vote. But again, what women are you talking about? (laughs) You know, because the women that look like me, we didn't have that right then. So I think it's really important that we talk about these things. Talk to us about intersectionality first, what it is and why it's important at work.
0: Okay. So I think some important context about me before I start talking is like, I'm like Issa I'm rooting for everyone Black, so you should know <laughs> that I start there. <laughs> I want that to sink in, just really absorb that, feel that right here. And the reason that I say that is because I think it's really important to understand the strata and the way that systemic racism works. And the fact that there's a hierarchy and the fact that Black women often fall at the bottom of that hierarchy. So it's not to the erasure of any other aspect of identity, but it's focusing. I'm in engineering, so we focus on priority zero. What is the most broken first? And what is the highest priority first? And so that's why I say that. Intersectionality is a really fraught concept, but it's a concept that deals with the different aspects of our identity and the way that they play off each other and with each other. And I gave that context first, not just for a punchline, but because it's important for the rest of what I'm going to say. I'm Afro-Puerto Rican. So what that means is I'm from Puerto Rico. My family's from Puerto Rico. My family is Black from Puerto Rico. If that's confusing, there's this really great search engine, (laughs) google.com.
5: Nice
0: part. Right? So I'm Puerto Rican. I was born and raised in the United States, but I'm Afro-Puerto Rican. And so what that meant is growing up, I was constantly compared to other Puerto Ricans that were white and told I wasn't pretty because I looked black. And compared to my sister, who's also black, but because her hair is a totally different texture than mine, we were consistently compared... Well, she's darker. Well... At least Dema is lighter skinned because Janita is darker skinned. But Mimi has, Mimi, that's what they call me. Mimi has that hair, but Janita does not. I mean, our whole life, I mean, to this day, we're 40 and 36. And to this day, this happens. So intersectionality means though that when I show up to work, I show up for so many different people. I show up as a mom. I show up as a single mom. I show up as someone who works in a computer science division, but does not have a computer science degree. I show up as a Latina. I show up as a Black woman. That confuses both sometimes Black women and Latinas. (laughs) Right? So intersectionality is important though. And it's really important for us, even if you classify yourself as a single race person, even if you classify yourself that way, because I don't know if that's really thing. But even if you classify yourself, it's still important because all of us are intersectional in so many ways. Your sexuality, your family status, the socioeconomic class you come from, what region in the United States you come from, or in the world you come from. And it's important that you embrace it because racism is so reductive. Racism sort of takes you down to the narrowest slice of your humanity, one that is a construct born from slavery, right, and colonialism. And so it's important that you acknowledge your intersectionality. That said, it's also important that you acknowledge that there's a singular thing about me. The thing about me that has caused me the most pain in my life and also the most joy in my life has nothing to do with my gender or the fact that like our colonializers and slave owners spoke Spanish. It has to do with my race, right? And no amount of that intersectionality has ever confused racist white people into thinking I wasn't Black right? They always manage to pick that up. (laughs) Like detect it (laughs) really far away. And so to your question, intersectionality is important because it helps us embrace the different aspects of our humanity. It also helps us understand in the ways in which we're connected, but it shouldn't be used to the erasure of the thing about you, right? That sort of causes that climb. And so it's important to understand both aspects of that.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that. And let's stay here for just a second. We talk a lot about diversity and inclusion in the workplace, but there's a difference between diversity and being included. So what would that look like? What would inclusion and belonging look like if I gave you a magic wand for women of color in the workplace?
0: Well, that's hard. To me, it's like diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice. And so like we can stay on diversity and inclusion. I'm really interested in things like equity and justice. And I think they sort of all go together. What what does that look Um, like? So I think... Diversity is really problematic and it's because human beings, like, can we take like a, I'm going to like go in space. Human beings are all diverse. You have your own identity within your brain. You are your own person. And that person inside your brain is unique and beautiful and called and loved. Yeah. So we're all diverse. That's that's like let's start there. But when we talk about diversity and inclusion we use it as a proxy for like being in a place that's not racist, not sexist, not homophobic, not transphobic, not ethnocentric, not anti-immigrant. That's what we mean. Right. And so I want to stop talking about diversity and I want to start talking about like, let's talk about the things. If you mean I want to work somewhere that's not transphobic, let's say I don't want to work in a transphobic environment. I don't want to work in a racist environment, right? I want to work in a place where everybody can be themselves. That's what inclusion looks like for me. But I think inclusion in terms of women of color, specifically in terms of Black and Latinx women and all the intersections in between, looks like us actually progressing, right? Like Melanie Parker, who's the chief diversity officer at Google and someone who I love dearly. We talk about community a lot. And like, I don't need to find my community within work. I'm glad that I have community within work, but I think it's really important for us to understand that we're part of a broader community, right? If I looked for my own, like the only community at Google, y'all, I would be so lonely all the time. Have y'all seen the numbers? Like, what? There's like five of us. It's a posse of like ten total, right? There's three Afro-Latinas in corporate engineering at Google. There, are two of them just got hired in the last six months. We increased by 300%. We're now a posse of three. (laughs) Stop it, right? Stop, (laughs) right? So I think inclusion is first about like loving yourself and that's hard in these environments, but like start at home first, start at home here. Mm -hmm. But I think that real inclusion looks like I want to see people progress. I want to see Black and Latinx women retained. I want to see them progress. I don't want to see them hired in at entry level and mid-entry level positions. I want to see folks actually given the performance evaluations that they deserve. I want those to be less based on our personalities and more on our accomplishments. I want to say that again. I want those to be less based on our personalities, <laughs> likability, palliability. How less threatened do you feel and more about our actual accomplishments? And I'd like to see white women show up for Black women. And I think that's like super important to the white women in the room. I love you all. Yes. <laughs> Deeply. And the men too. <laughs> and the men, but this is this is like for the sisters right now. That includes white women right now. My white sister. I want you to show up because we have to also understand that there is a legacy of the way in which like white and black men together work in a white supremacist construct. You're
2: taking another question. So I let's gotta... go there. <laughs> let's
0: we can't go there. Let's we can't take go a there pause.
2: right now. Okay, it's let's let's it later. <laughs> but but Ruchika, I wanted to ask you, do you have any personal experiences where you felt excluded
4: at work. Oh my gosh, where do I start? But I want to add on to, Dem, I loved what you said. For me, if I could wave that magic wand, you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway, <laughs> it is that women of color become decision makers, that we become intrinsic in the process to determine whether these silly performance review metrics, whether they matter or not, and they don't, right? And, and what are we <laughs> using, right? What are we using? Are we using likability as that metric, because we often are. So for me, that would be the big thing. Diversity and inclusion are great. I've built a lot of my last five years of my career on it. That's what those are the words I say to make people in majority positions and positions of privilege feel comfortable. But really, it's about equity and justice. And it's really about changing the ratios at the top so that we get to make some decisions, right? And we get to, to make decisions in partnership, right? And make no mistake. This is not about Upturning a system so that we create a brand new system so that some people are suppressed and oppressed and others are not. That's not what I'm asking for. What I want is in partnership, we get a seat at the table, right? Which is really the work you do, Minda. So experiences of exclusion are many and they're hard. And some of them will make me tear up, even if I talk about them right now. But I really want to jump off Demma's point, and it's this: the hardest experiences have been when white women have not shown up for me, when they have thrown me under the bus. And that has meant working at a company where I was making the most money I've ever made in my life. I'm a former journalist, so we make nothing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in fact, someone just said, I'm glad I didn't go into journalism because I would make no money. And I was like, you're right. Your parents did the right thing. <laughs> and I'm also a, a professor of journalism. So I say this with the most love. So I was making the most money that I ever was. It was in tech. And within a few months of me doing all the things, leaning in, throwing my best ideas at this person, our senior, senior, senior person of communications, I was like, I'm a former journalist. Here's like a 10-page report on what we should do to get our company's name out. She tried to get me fired. And not only did she try and get me fired to my face, like being like, here are the things you do that need to be improved or whatever. This is why you should leave. She actually went behind my back to my boss and his boss and tried to get me fired. and so. The stories of exclusion, I'm sure everyone in this room can talk about them. In fact, there's data that shows that even 60% of white men feel excluded at work and don't feel like they belong. But when it comes to women of color, I have to date not found a woman of color who can't name a story of where a white woman tried to throw her under the bus. So if there is something that I wish people could also take away from the session, it is really to show up for women of color. If you're a white woman know you walk with some privilege. Sure, gender bias is real and we face it too as women of color, but it really means it means saying things like, do I need to be the one running the meeting? I've run 10 meetings already, right? Do I need to be the person up on stage? It doesn't have to be me. And let me add one more thing to this. As an immigrant and as a person who presents as Indian and with all other privileges that I have, I also have a responsibility to carry this forward. And what that means for me is to educate myself on anti-Blackness. I grew up in a country where I didn't meet Black people, all right? It means to educate myself on slavery and the legacy of it and what we currently see, certainly. Then what it means is to literally give up my seat for women of color. And that means Black women, Latinx women, and really, really show up, really, really show up. And it's uncomfortable for me too, right? What I can do is I can say, oh, as a woman of color, like I've had all these negative experiences in the same way white women can say, oh, as a woman, I've had all these negative experiences. But it really means looking at the person who has historically been most marginalized and ensuring, ensuring that you create a seat at the table for them too. Absolutely. absolutely.
2: I know we have a time for a couple more questions, but I wanted to ask Raina, we're talking kind of about gender diversity, but we know there's so much more work that could be done. But Talk to the people who work inside of these companies and that have the influence. What could they be doing better?
3: That's a great question. So the good thing is that commitment to gender diversity from companies is it's at an all-time high. Companies know they need to be focused on this. They are focused on this. But what we really need to see is a whole new level of rigor around that focus. We all have jobs. We know what it looks like when our companies really make something a business priority. Companies need to be making diversity inclusion an actual business priority. We know what that looks like. It's setting goals against these things, measuring and tracking their progress. The managers are held responsible for the actual outcomes. There's dollars behind it. We all know what this looks like. That is what we need to see with diversity inclusion. And in terms of what companies should actually be doing policy-wise, I mean... I wish I didn't have to name this one. It's this very foreign concept called equal pay. But (laughs) the idea behind this is just if there are two people who are doing the same job, you're paying them the same amount. So that's kind of a table stakes thing that all companies need to be doing, putting processes in place to ensure that that's always happening. But moving beyond that, a really important thing companies need to be doing is ensuring that hiring and promotions are fair and the processes behind them are fair. We've spoken to small examples of these. Like it's so common that Women are judged based on their style and their personality. There's actually data. We have those receipts for you. There's (laughs) data behind this. Women are critiqued on their style and performance reviews. Like 61% of the time. Do you have any idea how many men get that kind of feedback. <laughs> it's 1%. It is actually 1%. We have these receipts for you ladies. <laughs> Just pick up a copy of the report. <laughs> so these kinds of biases are really real and companies need to make a real commitment to getting these out of hiring and out of promotions. And the reason why the focus needs to be there is because if you think about how people advance through the corporate pipeline, these are the two biggest levers for movement. You're either hired into a more senior job or you're promoted into that job. And so these are things that companies need to look at and make sure equal, they can adopt policies like blind resume reviews. You guys have all probably heard this, but if you just replace a woman's name with a man's name on a resume, the likeliness that she gets hired, it goes up by 60%. I also read something recently where if you replace a stereotypically black sounding name with a stereotypically white sounding name, it adds the equivalent of eight years to that person's resume. So these are things that have no place in the hiring and promotions process. People are getting bounced before they even get to the door, before a recruiter even hands a slate of candidates over to be considered. These are the the small things that are happening and companies need to make real commitments to getting that all the way out of the process. So it's things like blind resume reviews, it's mandating diverse slates of candidates for finalists. What this looks like is no more finalists where only white men were considered for a position and the hire is made anyway. Then it's also things like making sure that people are evaluating all candidates based on the same criteria. You guys have probably seen this where there's a bar, but it kind of moves depending on who's being interviewed and who's asking the questions and who's evaluating. So establishing a fair and consistent criteria across all candidates is where companies need to be moving. And then the last thing is, and we've touched on this, but unconscious bias is so, so central to what is happening to women at work. And it happens in really small everyday interactions, people mistaking you for being more junior than you really are. And it happens in really big ways. One thing that I've heard as I've pushed for more diversity inclusion at companies I've been in is we would love to see more women hired, but we don't want to lower the bar. (laughs) Have you guys heard that one? It's terrible. And I think little ideas like this are forms of unconscious bias. And that is why we're seeing that discrepancy between 100 men getting hired and promoted and 50, 60 Black women getting hired and promoted. So companies need to make real commitment. And it shouldn't just be managers who are getting trained on unconscious bias and decision makers, it's actually every single employee at the company because we have these experiences with our coworkers, with our peers, people at all levels, and they're impacting how our performance reviews are being shaped and how we're progressing through the workplace. So those are the main things that companies need to be doing. And then you made this point earlier, and I really want to underscore it. The most important thing companies need to be doing is measuring their progress and tracking this, looking at both gender and race. Those things combined, I think for a lot of companies, there's women's initiatives and there's people of colors initiatives and speaking to intersectionality, those are not different things. And if we treat them like different things, we're going to be adopting solutions and so many companies are here. We're going to be adopting solutions that work for the most visible group of women, which ends up being white women. So, in the report, we're really surfacing a lot of these different dynamics and making sure that companies are designing for the people who are having the hardest experience. And we know that that's women of color. So, companies need to be designing for that experience so that, as I said earlier, it's not just the white women at their company, but it's really all of the women at their companies who can thrive. Yep. No, thank you for that. Yes. So
2: one last question for all of you to answer, and then we're going to go to the audience because I'm sure you all have some questions as well. And the last thing I'll say too is bring in women of color speakers to your companies and pay them. That is part of diversity. You have to scale diversity; it requires a budget. Okay, that's just one to put that out there. Okay, <laughs> but the last question I wanted to tackle is real fast. Is one of the things that I talk about in the memo is self advocacy. How that is a muscle that we have to flex, and some of us are not comfortable speaking up for ourselves, right? And what would you tell your the younger version of you about why self advocacy is so important for us?
0: Yeah, I think it's something that you talked about earlier, which like really struck me and my soul, which is there's a cost for advocating for yourself. Like, let's be honest, there's a cost. And so there's been times in my life and not so much anymore as I've matured, but there's been times in my life where I haven't wanted to advocate for myself because the consequence is so harsh because it's a harsh consequence. Let's be honest. But I think what I would tell my younger self is to do it anyway, because the consequence to my soul, like to myself as a human being, if I don't is worse. Because that you carry everywhere. You carry it all over. You, it leaves with you at work, that low self-concept. So definitely advocate for yourself no matter the consequence. I think there's a cost to your soul if you don't. And that's way more important, right? You being yes. true to you.
4: Thank you. Sure. So for me, what really helped me is think about the women of color coming up behind me and with me and above me. One example is I negotiated really hard for a position and I got the salary I wanted. And then they said, please don't ever tell anyone else that we gave this to you. (laughs) And the next time a woman of color came to me and said, I'm thinking of taking this position. I said, this is how much I got offered. This is how much I asked for. I got it. Go ask for the same thing and don't take anything
3: lower than that. (laughs) I think you're making such a good point. You have to read the power dynamics and those are so important. But I do look back on my career and I think there are so many moments where I was the one who was giving up my own power and I didn't realize it. And so I think I would push myself as a younger person to think through, okay, I don't have the kind of power that I'm imagining at the highest level, but I still do have little bits of power here and there. And to think through what does that look like and how can I really advocate for myself? Because people especially from young people. And we know this with young people at our companies, like we want to hear their voices. They have the fresh ideas. People have different perspectives and people want to hear that. And so I would just encourage myself to really push for that.
2: Yes, at all ages, lean into that courage. And as Ashanti said, all the things that we accept be the things that we regret.
1: Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, maybe I, can, I, can I
2: put
4: this question back to you before we go to the q and yeah. I want to know, what would you tell your younger self
2: about advocating? Yeah. I would say, similar to what Demma said, we've been conditioned to put people at the center and not center ourselves at the expense of our own well-being. And so I would say You deserve it. Go for it. And if they don't appreciate you, you have options.
6: Sometimes we forget that we have options. Okay. Well, can you all join me in thanking our amazing speakers? They have dropped a lot of truths and a lot of knowledge here today. And before we go to the audience to ask questions, I just want to ask our attendees just one more thing. If you could give everyone here one marching order, one actionable tip, that they could easily implement when they leave today as it relates to maybe presenting your authentic self or mentorship, what would it be? So I would just say
2: that don't leave your career in the hands of anybody else. You've worked too hard to lean out now. And so that requires, if it's investing in yourself, whatever those skills that you need to move your career forward, never be afraid to invest in yourself. And that means being vocal as well. And so people can't help you if they don't know what you need. So figure out what are the tools that you need in your toolkit when you walk out of here. Because again, you've worked too hard to lean out now. And I don't want you to defer your dream because people don't get it.
3: I would say related to that is really know your worth. Companies, as I said, are so committed to this right now. And so companies are looking for you. Companies are looking for the talent that is in this room and we went through the numbers, the numbers aren't really there. So we are some of the most precious resources to companies. We're reaching for more. They want us. And so if you are not thriving in your environment and you're able to make a move, you are worth a lot and know whether or not that cost on your soul is higher than what you're willing to pay.
0: Yep. Something we haven't talked about, but adjacent, which is going through all of this is a form of psychological warfare and abuse. So mental health. I don't think it's something we talk about enough like take care of your mental health like go to therapy you are existing <laughs> in these areas and these spaces where you're one in few and you're constantly under assault please take it like do not be ashamed use all of your benefits go to therapy take the time off do all the yes. things
4: yes to all of that and Look for resources that you can give to your allies. It's not your job, unfortunately, but that's the way the place is structured. So the best sort of validation I ever get is when people say, hey, your article on office housework or your article on saying names correctly or whatever it is, helped me have a conversation with my manager or recommending Minda's book. I recommend it every time I speak Minda's book. The resources are there. So you don't have to be the one necessarily going up to those situations and me, like, here's my experience. If you don't feel comfortable, you should always speak out if you feel comfortable. But if you don't, these resources exist. There are books, there are articles, there are podcasts. So look for them and hand them over to the people who can be your best allies and advocates for you. Ladies, thank you.
6: Okay, you guys, we want to hear from you. Hello. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your stories. And one thing, ladies, if your name is not spelled correctly on your paycheck, make sure it is because that's essential. I'm a payroll manager. I'm telling you, it's essential. (laughs) Secondly, I am in payroll. But everything to do with diversity and inclusion is... It's just starting to hit me more and more as I'm going through my career. If I wanted to make that transition from one type of position to go to diversity and inclusion, what should I be doing to make that transition
0: into a completely different job that I haven't taken classes or courses for? What, what would you suggest? Wow. So I created my position because I was in Corp Engine that didn't really exist, corporate engineering. So I think, I believe that you should start in your area, right? Because diversity and inclusion or equity and justice, it exists. It's something that has to be solved in every area, right? And so I would start first thinking about who are you working with what are the opportunities that they're being offered? What are the resources? Can you hire more people into that division? Can you start thinking about payroll and like start where you're at? Because that's something that you have knowledge of and then continue to do research and branch out from there. I think anything having to do with like anything in HR is a huge opportunity to include or layer on diversity and inclusion. Think about it as a thread that you weave through everything you do as opposed to like a completely different section. Thank you. Thank you.
6: I'm going to go with the sister to my left. We have 12 minutes and I see eight people with questions. We're going to try to get through them. Okay. (laughs) This is knowledge. So please go ahead.
0: Yeah. So I think this is definitely just a wonderful discussion that we're having around this, but what does accountability look like at the C-level and at the board level?
4: Thank you. When I did research on gender diversity, it was, it was not very intersectional and and working to change that. But the number one thing across companies, industries, geography, I mean, I spoke to companies all over the world. The number one thing that helped with gender diversity and actually cemented within an organization was leadership buy-in. That was the number one thing across the size of the corporation, etc. The way accountability, what it looks like, is essentially to have people in the C-suite bought in to why diversity, equity, and inclusion are business and strategic priorities. They have budget for it. They're talking openly about it. The fortunate thing is I'm starting to see a lot more companies sort of cluing into this, but that is the only way we're going to be able to drive change. Thank you.
5: So from your experience, your research, and your observation, I'm curious, what's your view for the Asian or specifically like Chinese population in the corporate America? The reason I ask is when I come to this women of color sessions, not just this time, but multiple times, usually black and Latinos, usually are very vocal. And I come from China and from our culture, I know that it's just our culture that not easy to raise hand in public and speak for ourselves. And when I observe in America, even just American born Chinese, they can be like a lot of the population, the number a lot well-educated, but then when it comes to public speaking, business executive, business leadership role, it's really, really underrepresented. Yeah, I just want to thank you for raising this. This is
0: something that I talk about at Google all the time and it's public, so I don't mind saying it. If you look at our diversity numbers, you'll see that they say that 43% of Google's population is Asian, a large majority being from China, but then the actual leadership population is only 26%. Mm. I think that we need to talk about these different groups and the different needs that they have. And I think it's really important that you raised it.
3: Yeah. And what I would add to that is from the data, I think this is why it is so important to look at every group differently. And again, Asian is a very problematic category, but I do think this is where unconscious bias training comes in. Like companies, individuals, every person who works at a company and evaluates someone else's performance needs to understand the different stereotypes and biases that Asian women face. Little things like, A lot of times in performance reviews, they're deemed too nice to be real leaders or something like that. People need to know about these things so that they can actively counter them and think through different solutions they can put in place. Thank you.
4: Um, Really quickly, as an Asian woman who was born overseas as well, I will say this, that it's also important when you hear it come up, you can disrupt in the moment. So I've started saying to people, so, oh, you assumed I wouldn't talk like this because, because what? Because of the way I look? Or tell me more, tell me more. So that's a little piece. of yeah. Thank you. And
2: thank now you for even asking that question because it allows other people to think through that as well. So thank you.
5: Hi, thank you for being here. My question is around if anybody has a great example of how you've navigated white adjacency in the workplace. Hmm. Kind of
0: broad, but. Maybe have a definition just Um, in the room. So white adjacent means that you're not white, but people class you as being part of the acceptable group of people of color or white enough. Yeah, this happens to me all the time. People get really deeply disappointed because they don't know that I identify as black. And so they'll say things around me and assume. And then they have like this, there's this huge betrayal of like, oh my God, (laughs) she's not actually white adjacent. So the way that I navigate it is I disrupt it. I think it's really important to disrupt. So when someone says something to you or around you, there was this great campaign in the 90s around like making racial jokes, and people would just simply say, like, I don't get it. Right. So I do that a lot as I just like look at someone blankly or I say, What do you mean by that? Tell me more about that. Well, what exactly about this person did you find aggressive? What was it? The tone of their voice, how loud they were speaking, were they speaking quickly? What happened? right? And so that's how I disrupt it, right? I also lead with my race a lot because I think this also just it's for me, it's for my well-being. I just don't want to be considered white adjacent because I don't want to hear the racism. But when someone is racist around me, and by the way, I just want to say white adjacency is not something that just white people do. It's also something that people of color do to other people of color and especially around colorism. A lot of the times that I hear racist things, it's not white people, it's other Latinas, being racist against Black women, Black American women specifically. I hear that a lot, even in the workplace. Or I hear other groups of color doing this, trying to strata. And it's because of white supremacy, right? So I disrupt it
5: and I acknowledge it and I ask a lot of questions. I don't let it lie. Thank you. I'm loving what I'm hearing about leading the conversation. So I'm Hispanic, I'm Asian, I have a Black stepfather. So I'm a woman of colors. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I think I do have to make room for myself in the world. And I do like the idea of advocating, but I wanted to get back to a comment that you made that sort of caught me, the, the lady far to the right. Richie can hear Richie. You said that you would step Back or you would make room for a Black woman or something like So I wanted to sort of address that. How would you advocate for yourself yet give up your seat at the same time? What exactly were you speaking about?
4: Yeah. It's definitely a tough tightrope to walk, but it is understanding in which situations do I have influence and privilege. And in those situations, how can I make room and actually give up? And that means sometimes I get asked to speak, right? I have this book out, I, whatever it is. I've had people advocating for me across my career and they'll be like, Uchika, will you come back and speak again? And I'll say no you need to have another speaker. Or, Chica, will you lead this meeting? Or will you do this? Or whatever it is. And I'll say, no, I'm going to bring someone else in. To right? so mentor. And and no, not mentoring, actually giving up what I could... I mean, I'd be happy to cash that check in, right? More than happy, right? I'd be more than happy to hear my own self speak and pontificate again in the same room or whatever it is. <laughs> but the point is that I give up that seat because I realize like, I have that privilege and I've occupied it and now it's my turn to give it up. So be very active. It's not mentoring. It's not going to a person and saying, oh, you're not doing well or whatever it is. It's yeah. literally saying, here's the seat that I have and I'm not going to occupy it again. Right? Or if there's more seats and there should always be more seats at the table, I'm going to make sure that the seat next to me is taken up by another woman of color. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I just oh, want to
2: nice. jump in. It's, I'm a real firm believer in we secure our seat, but we also create a seat for somebody else. And to Rachika's point, when my book first came out, she did a couple of things for me, I, even as a, I call it a success partner, not necessarily an ally, but she featured me as part of her writing in Harvard Business Review, right? She shared that space with me. Someone else might not have given me the opportunity to do that. And then Also, she spoke at Fortune 500 company and she gave them my name and then they called me in. We can do that for each other too. And so I, and we both get to benefit from these things. And and so think about the space that you do have and the influence you have and how you can create other opportunities. And then lastly, I do want to say even the Lean In Foundation, just I wrote this book and I critiqued Lean In. Okay. And so, and even they pulled up a seat for me and invited me to their offices to have a conversation. And so, This is happening. We can do it. It's happening in real time. So uh, I just want to make those points clear.
3: Yeah, and I would just add to this. We think about this a lot as a foundation. And the way we think about it is it's not necessarily always needing to take a step back, but I think it's really having that responsibility to think through where is it that I can speak to this and should be speaking to this? And where is it that because of my situation, my race, my background, where is it that my voice should not be the voice that's centered? Where is it that we should be centering someone else's voice instead? And I think we all have a responsibility, no matter what our background is, to be thinking through whose voice should be centered and should be the most vocal in a given situation.
6: Thank you Okay, we're less than five minutes and so I'm just going to apologize to our other questions but I think you on my left are going to be our last question for our panelists. So your question please?
3: Hi so I'm pretty young in my career and this kind of sums off what you guys just said. but how do
6: I as a junior member help create space for other women of color because I don't have that many people who look like me at the top and I just want to be an advocate
0: for change for that. Good question. question. Thank you. Wow. So first of all, I think the first thing is just to... And this is going to sound contradictory to the advice we just gave. But I think when you're new in your career, it's really important to just fortify yourself first, just for a little bit. Just make sure that your foundation is steady. Because one of the ways that we make space for others is also by occupying our own space and doing well. Like that's step one, right? You can't pour from an empty cup, right? So I I would say like first start by foundationally taking care of yourself. And this is actually just really good advice in terms of your career in corporate America period. You should observe people around you, understand the dynamics, really learn, like take a second and learn and then pour into yourself so that you have your own foundation. Because once you do that and you know the lay of the land and you understand the way that you're being evaluated and you understand what you're able to contribute, you'll know exactly where to make the space because that takes a little bit of discernment And so it just takes a little bit of time and that's okay, right? I think often as soon as we get somewhere, we want to help someone else and that's beautiful, especially us. I feel like women of color, specifically Black, Latinx and all the mixes in between, we try to do that right away, but sometimes maybe a little too soon. So I'd say like, just take a beat and like observe and observe with a critical eye, be strategic. Who has the opportunities, Mm -hmm. right? Where can you grow? Where can you learn, right? And then you'll know how to bring others along as well. Thank you.
6: So ladies, invest in yourself, know your worth, mental health, and look for resources to give to allies. Would you please join me in thanking our panelists today for these amazing women? Thank you, Minda, Reina, Ruchika, and Demma.
1: You just heard from Google's engineering head, Dema Rodriguez, Raina Sadler, the Vice President of People and Managing Director of Sheryl Sandberg and Dave Goldberg Family Foundation, and Ruchika Tulshan, the author of The Diversity Advantage. To further your learning on systemic racism and what you can do in the workplace to impact change, please visit the Anti-Racism Resources website, curated by the Conferences for Women at www.conferencesforwomen.org backslash anti-racism. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this session helpful. We invite you to tune in for more best breakouts from the Conferences for Women.